Hi, and welcome to episode 85 of 5 Minutes of Rum. Notes on rum, a few minutes at a time. This is a companion episode of sorts to episode 34, which was about U.S. rum production and rum in colonial America. So continuing that story, we'll take a look at two acts of the British government leading up to the Declaration of Independence in 1776. For any listener who also happens to be a part of the Rum Rum Club at LA's Tonga Hut, well, you actually heard this in person on July 14th of 2019, so feel free to either take notes or skip it. Um, I'm also going to take a look at Pritchard's Rum, Pritchard's Fine Rum, I should say, a rum from Tennessee here in the United States, who also happens to have been producing uh, U.S. rum long before most of today's craft distillery movement got started, uh, all the way back to the mid-90s, I believe. Oh, and I'll mix up a drink that isn't really a cocktail for reasons that we'll get into at the time. All of this and nothing else in episode 85 of 5 Minutes of Rum. Now, as mentioned just moments ago in the uh, show open, uh, there are a lot of uh, rums being produced in the United States right now, including the uh, fine privateer in New England that we discussed in episode 34, uh, who also makes a Navy rum now that I would love to have a try. Um, Just need to get some distribution here in California. Anyways, uh, Pritchard's was one of the ones who, uh, if not the one, uh, quote-unquote, bringing it back uh, back in the uh, mid mid-1990s. Uh, the bottle I have on hand is actually not the current design, so the pictures you see in the show notes will look a, a little different. Um, you can visit the Pritchard's uh, website to see the current bottle design. Uh, my local retailer happens to have some older stock of this rum, and so that's what I was able to pick up. Now, uh, let's taste and, and, and take a look at this rum first before we talk a little bit about the production, uh, although we're a little light on details there. Um, it's you know pretty standard fare. There isn't anything that unique about the production, so no worries on that part. Um, in terms of appearance, uh, like I said, the uh, the bottle at my local purveyor is the quote-unquote old bottle. Uh, it's on the tallish side. It's got flat sides, so it looks kind of like a thick rectangle um, if you look at it from the side. Um, and it's a clear bottle with a smattering of stickers for information as the label. Um, there was also actually an unfortunate ribbon across the bottle top as well. Uh, that did not last. In order to get the bottle open, that thing had to be torn off. So um, I think they've changed that in the uh, in the current edition. It might be somewhat different. Um, the stopper for this bottle is a synthetic knob of some sort. Um, and then the rum itself, once in the glass, the rum displayed uh, basically an amber maple syrup hue. So uh, not terribly dark, definitely not uh, not clear through. This is not a, or see-through. This is not a, a clear or a silver rum. Uh, definitely showing it's aging, but it's not... Um, you know, like a, a darker rum that you can't see through. Uh, when it comes to aroma, uh, if smelling this from the bottle, uh, the the aroma was a bit muted because the uh, slightly elongated neck on the on the bottle doesn't allow for much aeration, which helps stir up some of the uh, the compounds that you're going to smell. Uh, once it was in a glass, uh, the first uh, aroma was that of you know simply ethanol, um, some sugar notes, but not really specifically distinct sugar notes. So in some cases, you may smell a rum and smell, say, burnt caramel. This isn't really that case. Uh, it just had a, an element of sweetness to it. Um, and then there were some uh, some barrel elements on the on the uh, nose as well. Uh, when it comes to tasting this rum, I have one right here. Uh, my first reaction when sipping the rum was that um, I was tasting something similar to whiskey. Um, but then I know that this uh, rum is produced in Tennessee, so actually that might be my brain just sort of tricking me into thinking that there uh, might be something there that there isn't. But again, that was my first reaction. Um, and it wasn't as sweet as I was expect, expecting based on the on the aroma. Uh, there's a nice dryness, but there's actually very little heat to it. Um, I enjoyed the sip more than the nose, that's for sure. Um, it also seemed to have uh, like leathery notes, you know, an overall sort of dryness. Um, it also veered, I would say in terms of body, it veers toward the lighter side of the equation. Um, 
uh, Pritchard's indicates that this is a pot still rum, uh, but to me it tastes more like um, an aged column still rum. It doesn't have as much of that body that uh, you would get from a, a more traditional pot still rum, or or in, in my experience with a pot still rum. Uh, the finish the finish isn't bad, uh, nor is it exceptional. Um, it's faint at first, and then does come back a little bit in the back of the throat. Um, it's not a warm finish, but it does linger for a little while. So uh, not bad, just not super notable. Um, and to sum up this rum, it's sort of a middle-of-the-road rum for me. Um, I've had a more recent bottling, and it tastes sweeter than this bottle, so I don't know if, if they've changed their uh, formulation at all, uh, but this one tasted a little bit drier than I was expecting based on tasting the newer one like we did at Rum Rum Club. Um, I would say it's serviceable as a sipper, uh, but there are better sipper rums at this price point. Um, it's absolutely preferable to any number of spice rums your local boutique distillery is selling, uh, so that has it has that going for it. Uh, ultimately, for me, I would consider this to be a mixing rum, but not one that I would stock regularly. Um, I do appreciate that Pritchard's was making rum in the U.S. when no one else really was, and overall, I'm favorable on the rum, but with space being at a premium in my bar and my cabinet, um, I don't have a dedicated spirit seller, for example. Uh, this rum ends up being on the outside looking in. Now, specifically about Pritchard's and the production of this rum. Pritchard's, as I mentioned before, uh, based in Tennessee, actually based in Kelso, Tennessee, if you're familiar with the area. Uh, and they make rum, and of course they also make whiskey because, after all, they are in Tennessee. Uh, they distill their spirits in copper pot stills, and the spirits uh, sit in charred white oak barrels, uh, whether it's rum or whiskey. That's the sort of uh, MO they have, copper pot still and then uh, charred white, white oak barrels. Uh, specific to this, the Pritchard's Fine Rum. Um, they source their sugar slash molasses. The, the, rum, the sugar comes from Louisiana. It is a molasses-based rum. Uh, the rum is aged for three years in those uh, aforementioned charred white oak barrels. Uh, the rum is also bottled at a traditional 80 proof for 40% alcohol by volume. The label indicates that it is bottled at barrel strength, but I think today's common understanding is that uh, that would seem to indicate a higher ABV. In other words, uh, people see cask strength or barrel strength, and they tend to think of things that are up in the 90s or 100 or something like that. Uh, so it might be a little bit um, outdated in terms of what uh, traditional wisdom says barrel proof is. Uh, their marketing currently leans heavily on the colonial aspect of rum production, uh, so that's as good a way as any to discuss the two-act rum play I was mentioning earlier called Molasses and Sugar, a rum play in two acts. Okay, what better place to start than Act 1, Act 1 being molasses. Uh, now, we all know uh, that rum is a derivative of the dominant Caribbean crop of the 19, or 1600s, uh, which was sugarcane. Uh, molasses was the byproduct of sugarcane processing, and molasses found new life as the base of a distilled spirit called rum. Uh, it's also heavily used as a sweetener for uh, the colonies where the colonies were not uh, importing refined sugar, uh, refined white sugar was destined for the aristocrats of uh, of the, the old land back in, in Europe. Uh, molasses was the sweetener of choice and also the, became the base of, of rum. Um, now, an abundance of molasses, um, you know, because of the sugar production, made rum a relatively cheap product in colonial America. So uh, just as a brief little recap of things we talked about in episode 34, uh, merchant ships docking at U.S. ports began to spread the spirit, began to spread rum. Uh, local merchants would procure it in bulk in wooden barrels, and then they would sell it by the jug or by the mug. Uh, and it was cheap. In 1700, a fifth of rum cost about $4. Now, while rum produced in locations like Barbados, Grenada, and Jamaica were all sort of favored rums, uh, local New England production ramped up in the early 18th century. Uh, much of the uh, New England rum came from molasses acquired in trade with the French West Indies, uh, where the colonies would trade things like lumber and flour. And unfortunately, we also know that the rum trade or the rum, tri rum trade triangle or the molasses triangle also included, uh, was linked to Africa and the slave trade. So part of rum's unfortunate history. 
Um, rum production in the colonies was largely based in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Uh, about three quarters of the U.S. rum exports originated from those two colonies. In the middle of the 18th century, Massachusetts alone had 63 distilleries, while Rhode Island had about 30, which is pretty impressive considering the small size of Rhode Island as a colony and as a state for that matter. Uh, the most famous of New England rum was Medford Old Rum, produced in, you guessed it, Medford, Massachusetts. Uh, quick aside on Medford Rum, the first distilleries were actually home distilleries um, of the Puritans, the settlers in the area, who then would share this rum with their neighbors. So they would distill at home and, and pass it amongst, you know, uh, amongst their neighbors. Uh, a man by the name of John Hall has been said to have opened the first business of rum production sometime between 1715 and 1720, and Medford Rum was born uh, and produced until 1905. Uh, Medford Rum was a robust and hearty spirit. By 1777, the price of Medford Rum was down to about 10 pence for a gallon. Now, in the uh, early 1800s, Medford Rum had a premium reputation in the world rum market. So uh, local shipbuilding, which was a, a key element of trade in and out of Medford, uh, ceased in 1873. And while Medford, the Re Medford rum business continued for about 25 more years, it was suddenly closed in 1905. So once you lose the shipbuilding and once you lose the local trade that is essentially leading traffic in and out of your city, uh, it sort of shuts off that part of the market. Uh, the other key contributing factors were both the thin margins on the product, a.k.a. losing money on it, um, and the temperance movement uh, movement in early, you know, the early 1900s was starting to take hold of the country at large. Now, the, excuse me, the day after announcing the closure, there was a rush to buy up the remaining stock. According to the Medford Historical Society, the family that owned the company sold the name and they sold the assets, but not the recipe. Uh, so Medford Rum immediately went from a uh, standard to a legend. Um, one last aside on Medford Rum, you may, or actually not on Medford Rum, but one last aside on New England and rum production. Uh, you may be familiar with the Great Boston Molasses Flood of 1919, uh, but you can't exactly pin that one on rum, at least not directly. The Purity Distillery uh, Distilling Company was in the distilling business, but it was producing plain ethanol, which is used in multiple types of spirits as well as munitions. Uh, in fact, speaking of munitions, if you ever have a chance to see uh, Beach Bumberry give his talk called World War Tiki, uh, you can find out just what the uh, what <laughs> airmen were doing. Uh, when they were creating something called torpedo juice. Uh, but I digress. I just, I think you should go listen to that talk if you ever have a chance. Um, a molasses tank, now back to the molasses flood. They had a molasses tank that stood near uh, Keeney Square, which was about 50 feet tall and 90 feet in diameter and contained uh, upwards of 2.3 million U.S. gallons of molasses. Uh, through a combination of uh, temperature increase and some other structural issues, uh, that burst um, <laughs> back in 1919, uh, that container and a wave of molasses, if you can imagine such a thing, uh, rushed through the sheets, uh, street sheets, the streets at an estimated 35 miles an hour, which is, you know, you know, you think of molasses as being slow, but um, it, terribly a wave of molasses running through the streets at 35 miles an hour proves to be um, pretty, pretty devastating and actually killed 21 people and injured 150. Um, and then local legend says that um, on hot days in that area, still, you can still smell uh, molasses uh, that just sort of permeates the whole area that that, that uh, took place in. Okay, now let's go back in history to the actual Molasses Act of 1733, or the long title that was bestowed on this act by the British Parliament, an act for the better securing and encouraging the trade of His Majesty's sugar colonies in America, um, which is pretty eye-rolling uh, when you read it that way, but that's just, I guess, the way acts were done. Uh, in those days. Maybe people got paid by the word. Um, now, this was an act from uh, Great Britain's Parliament taxing um, six uh, pence per gallon on importing molasses from non-English colonies. So remember that 
the colonies were in an established trade agreement with the French West Indies, and of course, Great Britain didn't collect much money that way. So the uh, in the uh, British West Indies, the plantation owners there pushed for this act to try and basically regulate trade. They wanted to be in on the trade um, that was established between the French West Indies and the United or the colonies at that time. Um, they were trying to make products from uh, the British colonies cheaper, um, and in Colonial America, as I mentioned, refined sugar wasn't uh, available, so molasses was a sweetener and used everywhere, not just on rum. And so the potential impact from this uh, act could have been sizable. It could have really helped the plantation owners who were trying to get uh, the trading uh, playing field leveled, if you will. Of course, if you want to wager a guess on how the colonials reacted, you probably will correctly guess that they opposed this act and actually openly defied it. Uh, Smuggling became the preferred way around this tax. Uh, And although Great Britain tried to fight smuggling by the 1940s, so just a few years after they enacted this act, they had largely given up enforcement of the Molasses Act. Um, Along with other acts, such as the Stamp Act, this led to uh, growing discontentment by colonial leaders. There was growing dissatisfaction in the overall oversight of the Great uh, Great Britain Parliament. Uh, The Molasses Act of 1733 was subsequently replaced by the Sugar Act of 1764, um, uh, also, well, not really known as this, but also known as this time for sure. Okay, intermission is over. Now let's move on to Act 2, Sugar. Uh, The Sugar Act of 1764 had a couple of other colorful names that really cut to the quick of the matter. The American Revenue Act or the American Duties Act. It also had a long title that I will not trot out here uh, because where the long title of the Molasses Act of 1733 was a relatively svelte 17 words, the Sugar Act's long title came in at 114 words. Uh, If you really want to read it, it's in the show notes. Go find it. It is a treat. It actually includes the entire uh, long title of the Molasses Act uh, within its 114 words. Now, the tactic for this act um, to be enforced was to cut the tax in half, and maybe just as importantly, hang, hang on, try and, just try and imagine they were going to actually try and collect the tax this time. Now, the basis for this was that during the Seven Years' War, or the French and Indian War, depending on when you went to school and where, uh, uh, Great Britain was increasingly in debt. So that war ended in 1763, but a standing army of 10,000 British troops was left in the colonies, which they, you know, they needed to be funded as well as they needed to pay down their national debt. And as you'll recall, the intent of the Molasses Act was to balance trade. The Sugar Act was specifically aimed at collecting revenue. So in addition to the taxes, exports from the colonies were also regulated. This increase in taxes and regulation was perhaps more important than the uh, taxation without representation. Um, heavily impacted uh, was New England, um, especially with a crackdown on smuggling. And then because the profit rum- margins on rum were already so low, um, there's an argument to be made that New, the New England rum industry really couldn't support this new tax. Um, as a as an effect of this tax, molasses supply and demand shifted to favor the British West Indies versus uh, New England rum producers. So it really did cut off essentially the rum production from New England. Now, one of the primary opponents of this tax was noted Massachusetts beer pitchman Samuel Adams. Uh, one month after the passage of the Sugar Act, Adams had already penned a response citing that a Trade tax was a slippery slope to taxing land and anything else that Parliament felt applicable. Uh, Adams also raised the specter of taxation without representation, but the thrust to me read economic impact when I saw his response, because basically he was saying, if you start with this tax, who knows what you're going to tax next. So Boston merchants uh, sort of protested the act by ceasing some British imports and starting to manufacture more goods in the colonies. So what you could make on your own, you don't have to import, and therefore you don't have to pay those taxes. Uh, the Sugar Act was replaced in uh, by the Revenue Act of 1766, so the Sugar Act was relatively short-lived. It only lived a couple of years. Um, and then the name, obviously, with the being called the Revenue Act of 1776, that starts to read really clear as to what the intent. 
Uh, tax on molasses uh, at this point had dropped to one penny per gallon. Um, and as evidenced by the dates, you can hear the Revenue Act of 17, or 1766, you know we're creeping up on 1776 and the Declaration of Independence. Um, so um, in an interesting way, rum production and specifically molasses imports were both important aspects that that helped lead the 13 colonies to assert their independence. Uh, there were tons of other reasons, of course. Uh, there were the Quartering Acts, the Stamp Acts, the Tea Acts, all those played a part. Uh, but rum and molasses were certainly more important than what I realized, or at least what I was taught in high school, uh, where there was nary a mention of either rum or molasses or why they were important. Uh, so I just found this to be an interesting aspect of rum's history in the U.S. is that, you know, it, because of its prevalence, it actually did have a, a, you know, an impact on leading the colonies to declare their independence. Uh, the, the early U.S., like we said, was a rum-producing and rum-drinking enterprise, um, and these acts were both direct shots across the bow um, and not taken lightly by the colonies. Now, our two-act play does have an epilogue, and that's going to include a cocktail in quotes, and we're going to talk specifically first about ice. So ubiquitous ice as we know it today has only been a thing since about the mid-1800s. As such, how you think about most modern cocktails is actually quite different than tavern fare of the colonies, uh, especially of like the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. Uh, Commercial ice harvesting in the U.S. began in the Northeast, actually Massachusetts again. Um, And for a short while, there was such a thing as the frozen water trade. Uh, Harvesters would cut ice from frozen lakes and ponds, load it onto a ship, and then move it around the world to places like the Caribbean and India. In fact, to get to India would take uh, four months on a ship to get uh, ice over there. So, yep, in colonial India, the wealthy British officers were drinking chilled drinks right there on the subcontinent. Now, ice uh, harvesting, they came from ponds that were frozen with just over a foot of water that would allow for harvesting. It had to be uh, 14 inches to actually um, stand the weight of the people and the equipment that they're using for harvesting. So uh, how they got to 14 inches, I'll leave to your imagination. Uh, it means they probably had some mistakes uh, with you know, 10, 11, 12, and 13. Um, so what they would do is get out on the pond or the lake, they would measure it, and then square everything off into a grid, and then saw that or cut that into blocks. And then the ice was stored in nearby ice houses, and then shipped via either the rail or the seas out to its eventual destination. Uh, The person credited with starting the global ice trade is Frederick Tudor, who was nicknamed the Ice King. Uh, One of his key discoveries was that sawdust was a good insulator for shipping voyages. Now, uh, with the Northeast being home to a lot of lumber mills, sawdust was cheap and plentiful. So it actually worked out really well. Incidentally, when he was developing his business, he visited the Caribbean and saw the potential global market for ice in places where they didn't have it. Uh, His first shipment actually was to Martinique, However, once the ice was offloaded, things went downhill quickly. There was no infrastructure in those warm Caribbean climates to keep ice frozen. Uh, so eventually he had to uh, train his buyers on handle, how to handle a property in order to keep that market alive and viable. Now, the way the Ice King really made his mark was by marketing to people. Uh, it wasn't really necessarily that he was uh, creating some sort of revolutionary product, but he was a great marketer. So he would um, market to people and businesses telling them why they needed ice and therefore creating the demand and creating the market for this sort of trade. So as an example, he would take his ice into bars and take samples of it and then sell folks on the benefits of a chilled drink. And of course, once the ice king became successful, competition sprung up everywhere and then ice became more of a uh, commodity. And so there the marketing turns to purity of ice uh, versus just the novelty of having ice. So this purity of ice uh, marketing is probably the beginnings of clear ice cubes and arm garters and hipster bartenders all the way back in the 1800s. Now, after a few decades in the early 1900s, the business turned from harvesting uh, to commercial production and factories. Uh, Pollution began to be an issue for lakes and ponds. 
um, and a series of warm winters in the Northeast hurt the overall ice harvesting business. And then eventually, as home refrigeration takes hold, the need for that much ice really uh, dropped off. In other words, when you have a refrigerator in your home, you don't need to ice it. Uh, you don't have an ice box. In other words, you're not uh, constantly putting ice in to keep your food food cool. Um, so at that point, ice became pretty much you know a luxury for chilled drinks and, and other sorts of things. Um, so enjoy your, your shaken and stirred cocktails, but know that in the Colonial Taverns of 1760s, uh, rum was drunk at room temperature. Oh, and to hear more about the story in a much better telling of it, go listen to episode 198 of 99% Invisible, which is where I originally heard the story about the Ice King. Um, and then you can go watch the opening scene from Frozen to see ice harvesting in action. That actually shows you uh, what it looks like as well. Now, all of this to say that the, uh, I would say the quote cocktail unquote for this episode is a a simplified form of grog, something that would be served in a colonial tavern. So it's not going to be iced. Um, and it's basically some simple additions to a rum that would potentially take or take the potentially rough edges out of the rum being served, depending on whether it was a, a quality rum or something that was a little more uh, down market, so to speak. The title of this drink is the Molasses Act. Um, and it's, a, like I said, a very straightforward presentation. So two ounces of rum. Um, I'm using Pritchard's in this case, but it works well um, with uh, heavier bodied rums also. I've I've had several with Hamilton 86, uh, and they were very delicious. Uh, that is going to be one half ounce then of molasses syrup. Uh, this is a recipe from the Smuggler's Cove book. You can find it in the back, but the the simplified version is that it's a two-to-one sugar syrup with um, a tablespoon of molasses added for every uh, every cup of sugar. So, for example, if you make uh, two cups of sugar, one cup of water, you would add two tablespoons of molasses. And so you get that uh, that nice molasses taste, but it's a little bit more pliable, a little easier to work with as opposed to using straight molasses, which gets really messy really quickly. Uh, you also add one half ounce of fresh squeezed lemon juice and one half ounce of water. Uh, combine all of that into an old fashioned glass or a metal tumbler and then stir it and sip. And that's really all there is to it. It's just, like I said, it's basically a way to, to add a couple of simple additions to rum. You can, you're welcome to sip rum neat here in the tavern. Uh, but I think also people before cocktails would just be adding things like that as a way to uh, sort of, um, like I said, sort of smooth off some of the rough potential rough edges from the rums. That's it for this show. Thank you for listening. The show links are up on the 5 Minutes of Rum website. That's number5minutesofrum.com. The show is also on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts or via your favorite podcast player. Look for it as 5 Minutes of Rum. Uh, if you like the show, please tell a friend about it. The show is also on Twitter and Instagram as at 5 Minutes of Rum. That's the at symbol number 5 Minutes of Rum. Please send any comments, corrections, feedback, or requests via the 5 Minutes of Rum website or Twitter or Instagram. And now, go get some rum. <laughs>